episode 58, Boyd's Girls. I'm Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a July 2nd, 2008 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. broken rifles and broomstick parts, Boyd's girl cadets were a force to be reckoned with. Established in the 1890s by a Kansas general, this group of Topeka women sported standardized uniforms and trained with pseudo-weapons. Join museum director Bob Keckeisen as he examines an American flag quilt constructed by this patriotic group. Were these girls simply a group of pretty performers that entertained troops? Or were they an extreme paramilitary organization itching for a fight? Later, we raise the stakes as we attempt to connect William Alla White to the legendary Las Vegas casino, The Sands. Did White, a small-town Kansas newspaper editor, take summer vacations in Sin City in order to hang out with Old Blue Eyes and Sammy and other members of the Rat Pack? You'll find out when we play another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, Boyd's Girls. Good afternoon, Bob. Good afternoon, Merle. Uh, today we're going to talk about a quilt. Uh, it's a wool quilt that resembles an American flag. It has red and white stripes and a blue field with white stars, just like your normal flag. Yep. Except the stars on this flag slash quilt, uh, they're embro- embroidered with female names from residents of Topeka. Um, patriotic quilts uh, are not unusual, but a quilt that cl- that resembles a flag this closely is a little unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, It was made by a group known as Boyd's Girl Cadets, and it was made in 1899. Um, Bob, who was Boyd's Girl Cadets, and uh, who are the people exactly embroidered on the uh, stars? Well, according to the fellow who organized them, a gentleman by the name of Boyd, obviously, uh, but the cadets were the only uniformed and regularly armed company of girls in the United States. Um, This was 40 women basically from the Topeka area. Um, They wore uniforms and military caps. They were armed with discarded Springfield (laughs) rifles. And these were women who were clerks and bookkeepers and stenographers in stores and offices around Topeka. And although a few were described as society girls, uh, you know, maybe from good families or families with a little more money, uh, didn't have to be... uh, in the workforce. Uh, This was a group that uh, Horatio Boyd got together and it included Boyd's daughter and several of her friends. So the names that are embroidered on the quilt are the names of the girls in Boyd's Girl Cadets. And uh, you, you mentioned the patriotic nature of the quilt and it's interesting because times of war generally tend to bring out a lot of patriotism and that's reflected in quilts, but a lot of quilts use emblems of patriotism. They'll use red, white, and blue, or they'll use an eagle, or they'll suggest a flag. This one actually looks like a flag, which is mm-hmm. which is kind of unusual. I, thi- I think that's interesting um, that 
um, quilts are patriotic themed and uh, you don't see the flag very often. And I wonder if that's because people um, show reverence to the flag and to turn it into a quilt to lay on your bed for you yeah. to be laying on and sleeping on. Maybe that's what causes people to be a little resilient. Yeah, about and this is idea. this is well before the U.S. flag code was adopted in the 1920s. But yeah, if you read the United States flag code now, you're not supposed to make the uh, flag into you know, a bed covering or a jacket or, you know, an article of clothing, anything like that. In fact, uh, uh, I think even a lot of folks that are um, trying to be very patriotic are, in a lot of instances, violating U.S. flag code by the way they display the flag. But it's uh, the code itself is a little arcane, and it really is pretty restrictive. Uh, but, yeah, quilts would be beyond the pale. Yeah, you're not supposed to make a make the flag into a quilt. But this is 1899, so. What, what would have been the average age of these girls? Probably in their uh, late teens to early 20s. Okay. Uh, some, you know, we don't have good records on who all uh, were actually in the cadets, but looking at the photographs, and we've got a couple of great photographs on our website, um, just looking at them, uh, I'd say, you know, late teens to early 20s. There's a few who look maybe a little older, might be in their late 20s. Who was Horatio Boyd, and uh, why was he uh, apparently surrounding himself with paramilitant women? <laughs> Uh, well, uh, take the second part of that question first. Uh, why wouldn't an older man want to surround himself with a group of young women? I mean, if, if I had the chutzpah to pull that off, I, I think I'd right. try it too. But I, right. I don't think I'd get a lot of young women to congregate. Around. Maybe if I offered them, uh, you know, um, discarded weapons, that would, that would help. <laughs> and told them they uh, can yeah, make quilts. Yes, they can, make, they can make quilts and they can drill. But, uh, but no, the more pertinent part of your question, uh, Horatio N. Boyd was serving as the assistant adjutant Adjutant General, that's hard to say, the Assistant Adjutant General of Kansas at the time that he organized the cadets. Now, Boyd was a veteran of the American Civil War, and he had enlisted in the 7th Illinois Cavalry Regiment when he was only 16. Oh, wow. Uh, and that was right at the start of the Civil War in 1861. He served throughout the war, you know, obviously made it to the end uh, in 1865, and then he returned to Illinois, but he came out to Kansas in 1877. And he tried his hand at a variety of different occupations. He worked as a farmer. He was a teacher, a newspaper man, a politician. Um, kind of a lot of a lot of folks came out here in the 19th century and you know tried their hand at a number of different things. Like you said, Bob, patriotic quilts pop up from time to time uh, during during national conflicts. And this quilt is no different. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the conflict to which this quilt is specifically related to? Well, this one was made right about the time of the Spanish-American War. Uh, Boyd organized the Girl Cadets in 1897, most likely in response to the growing tension between the United States and Spain. This is right before the United States got into the war. Um, Cuba had become a, begun a war for independence uh, from Spain in 1895, and over the next couple of years, there was a campaign to gain sympathy in the United States for Cuba and against Spain. It was pr pretty effective. And the press, this is about the time of when you start seeing the term yellow journalism. This is the time that the press starts uh, supporting the Cubans and portraying the Cuban guerrillas as really heroic and playing up a lot of Spanish atrocities. And most people in the United States supported the Cubans, and it was in that really climate of increasing tension uh, between the United States and Spain uh, that 
Boyd organized the cadets. Now, the quilt itself was made in 1899, which would have been during the Spanish-American War, since the war um, actually broke out in 1898. So um, this quilt has uh, real definite connections to the Spanish-American War of the late 19th century. I have to say, Bob, you just did a pretty good job of summarizing what is potentially an unbelievably complex war with the Spanish-American War. Hey, that's my job. Just, <laughs> that's yeah. pretty impressive because it pulls in like the Philippines, oh, yeah. Spain, Guam, all kinds of weird stuff. But but you summed it up nicely. Since this group was never really actually sanctioned by anyone, just kind of made up by uh, by uh, Mr. Boyd, uh, the girls couldn't actually be armed. Nope. Um, to counter this, Boyd had the girls conduct training that involved discarded rifles and broomsticks. Mm-hmm. Bob, can you tell us a little bit about this practice using broomsticks and uh, old rifles? Well, interestingly, um, this was not an original idea with Horatio Boyd. Uh, broom drill sco- squads, that's hard to say too, broom drill squads were actually quite popular in the late 1800s. And this is the time when exercise and sports were becoming more acceptable pastimes for women. So, you know, getting out and being physical and, you know, doing military drills and things wasn't seen as probably as weird as it would have been maybe, you know, 15, 20 years earlier. And the broom drill was the female equivalent of a rifle drill. And a lot of times broom drills were organized to raise money for charity. And you'll indulge me, I found an article from the February 19th, 1881 edition of the New York Times. I'll show you this isn't just a Kansas phenomenon. Okay. Uh, and it goes on about a program that was presented by the ladies of the First Universalist Church um, in 1881, and they talk about tea being served, and then there's a program with, you know, so-and-so played the piano and Miss So-and-so sang and all that. And then they go on, quote, after which came the attraction of the evening, the broom drill. The squad consisted of 12 young ladies armed with brooms and uniformed appropriately, red, white, and blue, alternating in the ranks, under the command of Captain Cora Bernard, with Miss May Dunlap as drummer. The brooms were all decorated with red, white, and blue ribbons, and as the ladies marched with gay colors flying, keeping perfect time with the tap of the drum, they presented quite a warlike appearance and fairly took the house by storm. After the usual military tactics by the word of command, an exhibition of the silent drill showed a proficiency which was truly surprising. At the close of the drill, the brooms were sold by auction, bringing from 50 cents to $1.50 apiece. Wow. So it's got a very performative, like women very much wanting to perform or emulate soldiers. Yeah, and it's almost a a performance art and a fundraiser at the same time. Sell your broom at the end. Sell the broom. It's. you know, kind of like you do celebrity auctions where they, you know, sell off their costumes and from the play or whatever. This one, you know, buy the broom from the girl after she's after <laughs> she's done drilling. But um, yeah, so so it's not unique to Kansas. Um, what Boyd's girl cadets were armed with was discarded Springfield rifles, and these are rifles that have been damaged somehow. A lot of times, the the barrel would have been bent, and what they did was take the barrel out of the Springfield rifle and replace it with a bored out broomstick. Now, why it was important to bore out the broomstick, I don't know, but why you couldn't just put a broomstick in there, I don't know, but the women drilled with those rifles, evidently they got pretty proficient at it, and he used to drill them on the state house grounds down at the Capitol in the evenings, and one of their big jobs was to accompany male army recruits to the railroad depot. 
So, you know, during the Spanish-American War, you know, men would, you know, sign up, recruit, go to the train depot to go off to training. Well, they would be escorted by Boyd's Girl Cadets. And, and they marched and performed in the Senate chambers. Um, they performed in local parades. So it was a pretty popular uh, group, and they were evidently out and about quite a bit. So they had kind of a, uh, like a USO component to them. Almost, yeah, I think so. I, th- I think this is, is sort of an auxiliary w- uh, support for, you know, the men that are going off to war, the men that are going off to uh, train for the military. It's a, it's a way to get, you know, the uh, women involved and give them something to do. And as I said, it, it's, this is right about that time when physical activity is becoming much more acceptable for women. So this is probably a, a way that, um, you know, they, they could get involved since they actually couldn't join the military at the time. Do you think uh, that the article you just read talks about that they sold brooms as a fundraiser? Mm-hmm. Um, and I know a lot of times quilts were assembled to mm-hmm. be auctioned off as fundraisers. Do you think that this quilt was intended to be sold as a fundraiser for for Boyd's Girls? Yeah, haven't been able to find any evidence that that's the case. I would think that this is probably put together by the women themselves as just um, you know a memento of their time in the cadet corps. I think it I think it meant a lot to a lot of them. These girl cadets, um, which were women dressed in uniform with with fake weapons, uh, they must have been a pretty incredibly exotic sight to be seen. Yeah, I would think so. Because, I mean, I don't know. In some ways, I could see it as really kind of breaking down some social norms. Mm -hmm. Um, Even today, women are not theoretically supposed to be in combat. Um, do you think Boyd was was sincere in his vision of these militant women, or was this basically just a publicity stunt? Yeah. Um, well, I think you know since they aren't using actual weapons, I, I'm you know I'm not sure you could make the case that Boyd is you know trying to break the existing gender barrier in the 19th century military. I don't think by putting this cadet corps together, he thinks, oh well, I'll show them. You know, um, but I think it was. Well, while he probably didn't actually want or expect the women to go into the military, I think it was a good deal more than just a publicity stunt. I think he was probably a great promoter who just seized on the patriotism of the day using the resources he had at hand. Um, you know, there are these young women in the workforce now. You know, this is not a time when women are just sitting home. Um, so I, I think he provides a good social network for the women as well. Uh, I, I think the women who were in this really were probably, probably very proud of it. Broom drill squads were apparently uh, very popular, mm-hmm. uh, like you said, in the 1800s, in the late 1800s. I'm curious, Bob, mm-hmm. how effective is the broomstick in battle? <laughs> why, why were they <laughs> training on the broomstick? Why, you know, why not a mop? I don't know. Uh, could, one, could, could one actually be swept to death? Uh, you could be swept off your feet. I don't know if you could be swept to death, but uh, I guess... You know, unless you could sharpen one end of it and get close enough to jab your enemy, I'm pretty sure the guy with the rifle um, is going to beat the guy with the broom <laughs> 99% of the time. Although, if everybody had brooms, uh, you know, the instead of firearms, the world would probably be a lot safer place. But, right. Uh, wars, battles would probably take a lot longer. But then, you know, hey, everyone could chip in and sweep up afterwards. That's so, true. It know, would be tidy battles. Yeah, you could clean up afterwards. Yeah. You know, use your broom, knock somebody on the head, and then sweep up. All right, Bob. Well, thanks for telling us about Boyd's Girl Cadets and uh, this quilt that they made. And uh, thanks for telling us about some brooms. It was my pleasure. When marimba rhythms start to play, dance with me, make me sway. 
Like lazy ocean hugs the shore. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. And the museum's Assistant Director, Rebecca Martin. Hi. Uh, this week's challenge was to connect William Allen White, the newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, and winner of two Pulitzer Prizes to the Sands Hotel and Casino and Casino in Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, so first, we'll just start off. I'll give you a little general background. Um, just so you know, gambling was legalized in uh, Nevada in 1931, and shortly after that's when Bugsy Siegel, Bugsy Siegel started building the Flamingo, which was kind of the first of the casinos. He really dumped a lot of money into Las Vegas, and that's when the development began. And it was out in the desert. There was nothing there. Mm -hmm. Sheep. There was cheap land cheap there. Land. <laughs> Not cheap water. <laughs> and um, so um, the Sands Casino which is one of the more famous um, earlier casinos. It's actually kind of a second-generation casino. It was uh, the seventh to be constructed on the Strip. Um, it opened in 1952, and it closed in 1996 when it was imploded. When buildings close in Vegas, they go out in they, style. They yeah. implode them. No, it's a nightmare for historic preservationists. <laughs> no historic preservation office there. <laughs> no. Um, today, if you go there today um, and you wanted to see the sands, well, you couldn't because you'd have to you'd have to take a look at the Venetian, which is uh, located on its spot. Interesting fact: in the mid 1960s, um, when the sands was um, was not doing so well. I think some of the owners were uh, frivolously spending money. A little mm. bit of corruption, I know. Yeah, a little? The mob. Really? Um, not in Vegas. <laughs> it was purchased by a man, by the reclusive billionaire Howard Hughes, who owned it for a little while. Hmm. Um, the Sands is probably best known for being the home to the Rat Pack, which was the ultra-cool gang that included people like Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., and Peter Lawford. They all kind of hung out there and performed there. And at one point, Point later on, Frank Sinatra actually owned part of the Sands. Um, so that's the background on the Sands. Um, Nikayla, uh, do you have a solution? Do you have a way to? I think it's interesting because I know we've done a lot of weird connections, but the Sands just seems so non-William Allen White. You know, <laughs> it wasn't yeah. built till like over a decade after his death. What could possibly be the connection between mm. this conservative Republican? Um, newspaper editor and a <laughs> casino on the Vegas Strip. The same thing that's the connection to everyone. <laughs> William Allen White. That's how they're, they're the same. Did you look in the autobiography? Um, I didn't look in the autobiography, um, but my look connection... Look the index under yeah. a casino? <laughs> Sands, <laughs> Gambling. Um, that's kind of lame. Um, so at the Sands Hotel, uh, the restaurant there was designed by an architect named Wayne McAllister. He also designed the restaurant for the Roosevelt Hotel in Hollywood, which is named for oh, Teddy Roosevelt. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, and everybody who listens knows that William Allen White and Teddy Roosevelt were friends. But yeah. also the Roosevelt Hotel, there are some other connections. We've talked before about um, William Allen White meeting Douglas Fairbanks. He yeah. lived at the Roosevelt Hotel. And um, Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Um, partially financed the hotel when it was built. The so, Roosevelt Hotel. The Roosevelt Hotel, hmm. yeah. And it was done by the same designer. Well, the restaurant was done by the same architect, yeah. Wow. All so, right. There you go. Nicely done. Well, I have a solution as well. Um, like I said, um, the Sands was kind of known for its, as an entertainment casino. Uh, many celebrities gave performances in the infamous Copa Room of the Sands Casino. <laughs> and uh, those performers included a little lady known as Tallulah Bankhead. 
A lady? You called her a lady? <laughs> a little uh, lady. Bankhead was an American actress um, known for her somewhat extravagant and indulgent lifestyle. In the 1920s, she was known for her witty comments and multiple personal relationship. And of course, that puts her in line with a big group <laughs> of other people from the 1920s uh, known as the Algonquin Roundtable. Mm -hmm. And as we all know, William Allen White was friends with and served as editors for several writers on the, on the, uh, that were members of the Algonquin Roundtable. Mm -hmm. So well, there we go. That's, uh, that's the connection. Pretty neat. Rebecca, you want to give the challenge for uh, for next week? Yeah, for the next episode, we want to bring a little sparkle to your life. <laughs> this sounds like a commercial. <laughs> we want you to connect William Allen White to the De Beers Company. And if you're not familiar with De Beers, uh, that's not a Chicago way of saying beer. <laughs> or De bears. Beers. Or bears, De Beers. Uh, this company, the one we're referring to, is famous or infamous for its exploration and distribution of diamonds. Yeah, it's got a very, there's a lot of conspiracy connected to mm -hmm. the De Beers company. I think they're like a Dutch company, right? Uh, I'm not yeah. sure, we'll but have some to, people. We'll find out next week or next time. Uh, <laughs> but they've cornered the market in the world. Diamonds. That, that's a nice way of putting it. Uh, so if you think this challenge, so if you don't think this challenge is too hard... <laughs> Oh, diamond, oh diamond, okay. Diamond humor. Uh, we want you to play. Just send your chain of connections to podcasts at kshs.org. That is podcast with an S. Like a flower bending in the breeze. Bend with me, sway with ease. That concludes episode 58, Boyd's Girls. If you'd like to see images of this rare flag quilt that was made by a group of militant women during the Spanish-American War, go to our website, kshs.org, and click on the podcast icon. Only you have the magic technique When we sway I go Come back in two weeks when Assistant Museum Director Rebecca Martin examines cookware used at the first family-owned Mexican restaurant in Wichita, Kansas. Born in Mexico, the founders of this restaurant lived through a series of incredible events before even arriving in the U.S. Events that included extreme inflation and the Mexican Revolution. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories.